It is Friday the 3rd of May 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin and welcome to episode 38 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. The information discussed on the show is general information only and if you're looking for financial advice please speak to an authorised financial advisor. So I'm going to be doing a series of episodes on the NZX. And what prompted me to do this was an article by Brian Gaynor that was reposted on an NZX Facebook group that I follow. So you should take the time to read the article, any article that comes out from Brian. Um, he, he is one of the NZX's best market commentators, and he writes in an entertaining way, which makes it easy to read, and it's always worth a read. So his articles are normally pretty well balanced, and they seem to keep, well, at least sometimes, keep other companies and, and the market operators honest. So... I think it was a, a good idea to do a series of podcasts on the NZX because it's something that we always talk about as investors, and that is the stock exchange. And in the case of the NZX, they have come under a lot of pressure from investors over the last few years. And the stock itself, that is NZX the stock, they trade on the, and I'm sure you can guess this, on the NZX, under the ticker code NZX, by the way. The stock itself has completely lagged the market. And a lot of Criticism that the companies come under is justified in my view, but a lot of it perhaps is a little bit, well, often a lot, but a little bit uninformed and biased to the fact that there haven't been many IPOs in the last couple of years. So what I'm hoping to do in this series of podcasts is provide some sort of middle ground, you know, openly discuss some of the criticisms criticisms that have faced the company, but also provide a bit of a reality check as well and a bit of a balance because there's always, you know, I don't think anything is ever as as clear cut as to say the NZX hasn't had any IPOs so they're necessarily so they're a bad company. It's not necessarily true. Now I say a series of podcasts because in this podcast I'll talk about my views on the NZX as a, as a company and do a little bit of basic analysis as well. And the second podcast which will be released next week I'll interview Graham Law who is the CFO of the NZX who will hopefully give you a good understanding of what the NZX does and what they're attempting to do going forward. I've also reached out to Elevation Capital. They're an, an NZX activist investor who have been quite vocal in, in some of the criticisms, criticisms with the NZX, so they'll provide that sort of view, and I hope they'll join me in, in, in another episode. And I've also reached out to Brian Gaynor to see if he would be interested in coming on. So it could be up to turn into a, a series of podcasts, a series of four podcasts, and that, that would be great. So I'll start with some commentary regarding the article from the other week by Brian Gaynor. So the article comes starts off by saying, and I'm quoting directly here, a large number of high-profile Wall Street initial public off- offers raised a well-worn quest- question, why hasn't the NZX had an IPO since May 2017? By contrast, any I'm missing some out here. By contrast, the ASX has had 163 IPOs since Oceana Healthcare joined the NZX nearly two years ago. And I think and by high-profile IPOs, he means companies like Uber and Spotify and things like that. And I think it is important to put these comments into context. And this is not a, a criticism of the article in any way because he's obviously trying to make a point and successfully does. It's you know He's not trying to find context. So yes, there's been lots of high-profile IPOs in the United States recently. And one thing that you will find out about the US markets is that if you throw a dart at a calendar, and unless your dart lands on the financial crisis or some other serious recession, you're going to find that there's virtually always some high-profile IPO going on. 
It's just an ongoing thing in the United States. And there's always going to be high-profile IPOs. There'll be high-profile IPOs in the future. There'll be There's companies that, that don't exist right now that will one day have high-profile IPOs in the United States. It's just a fact. So one thing you'll find is that if you dig, dig beneath the surface of the US markets, you'll find that there's actually significantly less listings in the United States than what there used to be. And Google something like number of listings in the US stock markets and click on Google Images and you'll see hundreds of charts showing that a significant decline in the number of listed firms in the US stock markets and that the number of listed stocks in, in the United States looked like it peached, peaked in the mid-1990s at over 8,000 and since that time it's been in a consistent downtrend and I think in, in 2017 there were just over 4,000 companies so the number of companies in the United States is actually halved and this same trend has obviously happened in New Zealand and for the same reasons I might add. So the thing is that you notice it a lot more in New Zealand when a market goes from having, and I'm making up numbers, 300 listings to 150. It's, I'm trying to think of an analogy but um, I guess it's like going into a into a grocery store and stealing one apple from a pile of a hundred. The, the store owner is not is is less likely to no, notice than if the shoplifter took one from a pile of five. I'm not sure if that's a good analogy, but I hope you get what I'm trying to say. So the trend worldwide is is towards less public companies. And that might change in the future, but it's definitely a trend now. And of course, it concerns me. I'd love to see more IPOs, not just in New Zealand, but worldwide. And in some ways, the ASX does buck this trend. So I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, what about the ASX? They have IPOs all the time. And they do seem to get more listings. You can't argue with that. And it is easy to make the comparison between the NZX and the ASX, especially as they are the closest country to us. And we're always going to get compared that way. Now, again, Gaynor is, 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 is making a point here, so it's not necessarily a criticism, but I, I, do, I, I, I do not think that comparing the ASX to the NZX is necessarily a fair comparison. Of course, it is on some levels. They're both stock exchanges, so you can compare them there. But Australia has five times the population of New Zealand. Its, it's gross domestic product in, in US dollars is $1.3 trillion, and that is compared to like $200 billion in US dollars for New Zealand. So... Yeah, I can thank Google from those numbers, but straight away, you, you'd expect a country with 1.3 trillion in GDP to have a more robust capital market than a country of 200 billion. And it would be interesting to see a breakdown of the 163 IPOs that gain on sites. I mean, now I, I said he's just using the number to make a valid point, but and I'm not going to launch some sort of academic research into this, although somebody probably has or at least should. But I'm willing to bet that the majority of these 163 IPOs are small and speculative mining listings. So here, here is the other thing about Australia. They have one of the most thriving mining economies in the world. This mining activity spits off truckloads of small mining projects that the ASX and they use the ASX as a vehicle to raise money for these projects. And again, I'm not going to back this up with statistics, but the New Zealand economy is hardly geared towards mining. So naturally, we do not have these IPOs, it's a fact. And the analogy that I would use here is that um, it would be like looking at Brazil and saying, how come your rugby team is not as good as the All Blacks? And the answer is obvious, because all the all the talented kids grow up playing soccer so they don't produce talented rugby players. It's it's simple. And it is the same with the NZX. Why don't we get as many IPOs in New Zealand as Australia? Our, our economy is six times smaller and we don't have a mining sector. The other 
comment that I would make to this, and again, this is anecdotally, is that most of these IPOs in Australia are, or at least should be uninvestable for most people. When you get the chance, scroll through a list of small ASX companies and you'll find one small, crappy, capital-sucking and unprofitable mining operation after another. They just, they're just there and there and there. So now that we've leveled the playing field, what about the NZX? Should there be more IPOs and, and are they doing a, a good job? And I'll return to a quote from Gaynor's article. The NZX is losing out to the ASX which has adopted the aggressive marketing approach embraced by the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Consequently, the NZ Exchange has lost to the ASX on several IPOs, including Straker Translations, I hope I pronounced that right, and Vopara Health Technologies. Now, to be honest, I have to agree with the point that Gaynor is making here. I think it is disappointing from the NZX perspective that New Zealand-based companies are deciding to bypass the, the NZX completely enlist on the ASX. I believe that the rationale of these companies is they'll, they'll find it easier to raise capital in the ASX. And in my opinion, this can often be a, a warning sign for the business, in my view, sort of an admission in advance that they'll need more capital. And, you know... Nine nine spokes, for example, they, they trade on the ASX under the ticker code 9SP, that's a number 9SP, and Living Cell Technologies, ticker code LCT, are two examples of Kiwi companies that have direct listed on the ASX that have provided dreadful returns for shareholders. And I think Gaynor wrote an article not too long ago pointing out the returns of, of 10 public companies on, New Zealand companies on the ASX. And I always say that you, you don't see Ryman Healthcare bothering with the ASX. The, the business just doesn't need it. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm getting distracted. I think it is always disappointing when a New Zealand company bypasses the NZX for the ASX. I think to a certain degree it will always be inevitable for some companies. The same reason that many people prefer to live in, in the cities and the countryside. They're, they're attracted by the dazzling lights of the ASX. And I think that is the case with Zero. They were attracted to the bright lights and you know that was just incredibly Disappointed, disappointing, wasn't it, to see Zero leave the the NZX? You know, they didn't even do it early in their life. They did it later on once they were already established. So you have to wonder why. And I can't imagine that these points are lost on the management of the NZX. You know, obviously they're going to be disappointed. Zero is leaving. They're disappointed. These companies are. Uh, listing on the ASX, and they'll no doubt be aware of the lack of IPOs, and that we haven't haven't had many in that they'll know about no doubt to see, be disappointed to see companies like Straker and Volpara list on the on the ASX. And you know, it, I'll I'll talk more about this with, with Graham Law next week, but an IPO is not just like turning on a switch. It's it's not something you can just pull out of thin air. It it, it takes years of work often. So it'll be interesting to hear his views on that as well. The argument that I often hear with the NZX is that they should merge with the ASX. This is normally, I think, a, a shoot-from-the-hip comment that is following on from the suggestion that there are not enough IPOs in New Zealand. I mean, I, I personally would be gutted to see the NZX merge with the ASX. It, and it, it wouldn't be a merger, by the way. I mean, when a $14 billion company buys a $280 million company, it is a takeover or a buyout. It's not a merger. So I, I don't think that it would really be in the interest of the ASX either. And it's certainly not, in, I don't think, in the interest of the NZX. And it would be a short-term solution. And I don't think it's in the, the best interest of the investing public. Anyway, 
I don't think we want Australians, in fact, I shouldn't say Australians, but another country controlling our stock exchange. Anyway, if you think about it, the NZX is about 2% of the ASX's market cap. Um, and any takeover would likely be a long and drawn out process that would consume more than 2% of the effort. And it would probably still be blocked by regulators or the government at the end of the day. And it should be blocked as well. I mean, I, I, I like, despite the obvious criticisms of the NZX, I like having an independent stock exchange in New Zealand. So what of the NZX as a business? And the only thing I generally hear people saying about the business is that there's not enough IPOs. I've never actually heard anyone talk about valuation of the company or talk about it as an actual investment. So what about it as an investment? So from a qualitative perspective, they're obviously a stock exchange. And that they're a monopoly in New Zealand as well. And, and yes, some of their business has been pinched by the ASX, and it's not as monopolistic as it used to be with all the private money floating around these days, but it still is a monopoly. Try and open a stock exchange and you'll see and you'll find out what sort of barriers to entry there are. And you know, there's a reason why it's there's not a competing stock exchange in in, in, in New Zealand. So from that perspective they, they get a tick. And all else being equal, if, if you've got two companies beside each other and everything else is equal in terms of valuation and everything like that, you invest in the monopoly every day. I'd rather invest in monopolies. So a stock exchange is also a relatively capital-light business these days. I mean, automation and computerization has seen to that. So using the numbers from the annual report last year, ending December 2018, the company generated $24 million cash flow from operations. And this is virtually free cash flow. I define sorry, free cash flow as cash from operations minus capital expenditures. And there's not much in the way of necessary capital expenditures that the NZX has to make each year to roughly maintain its market position. And sure, there are a bit of capital expenditures, but that, that they're made to improve the business. It's not to maintain their position. It's not like they have to suck out 15% of their revenue each year to maintain their standing in the world the same way an airline would, for example. And my opinion anyway, you can argue about that, whatever. But my opinion is that the capital expenditures will be less than a depreciation charge. So let's just say they're generating $24 million in, in free cash flow. That's from $67 million in revenue. So the first thing you'll notice is that they're a very profitable business. They're getting $0.36 cents for each dollar of revenue, $0.36 cents in cash flow for each dollar in revenue. And just to compare to the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ gets about $0.25 cents in the dollar. So they're more profitable than the NASDAQ. Then you look at return on equity. This is also high at 38%. That's free cash flow to equity, by the way. Net profits are lower because of the large depreciation charge. So just as a, a sanity check here, I always figure out return on capital employed. So you take the current assets, subtract the current liabilities, and add back the property, plant, and equipment. So that's how you get the capital employed in, the, in a business. So they're deploying just under $40 million. And so they're earning... So off that, they're earning 60%. So what do you have? You have a monopoly that is making monopoly margins with high returns on capital. So there's a lot to like. They also pay out the excess cash as a dividend. So at the moment, the dividend yield is about 6%. So why is the stock, that is NZX the stock, lagged the wider market over the last few years and what has to be one of the greatest bull markets in history? The stock itself has essentially languished. 
And five years ago, it was $1.40 a share, nearly $1.40 a share, and, and now it's around a dollar. And of course, they're paying out most of their earnings as a dividend, so there's that component as well. But, it, you know, it's you don't have to be a mathematical genius to figure out that they've lagged the market. So I, I think that they've been a, a bit directionless with their strategy, and there's been a couple of management changes that, that wouldn't have helped with that, and they have essentially languished. So if you think about the types of businesses where you know this can happen, a stock exchange would be right up there. So firstly, you have a very old business where some of the old systems might still be used, and some of the you know some of the old practices might still be in place. So you know, any time you've got a really old business, sometimes that sort of thing can happen, and it also operates as a monopoly. You put these two things together, you sort of have a, a fertile breeding ground for complacency. And I think that that this is this is has has happened somewhat. And I'm not saying that this is the case with the current management, but I I don't think that it's an unfair criticism to say that the company in the past has been pretty complacent and revenues in. This is reflected in revenues because revenues in 2013 were 62 million or, or whatever they were, and in 2018 they're 67 million. So that's stagnant. That's the definition of stagnant. And now the company is never going to be something that, that grows at 25% a year, or at least not for any time period that is sustainable. So then you think, okay, what what would be realistic over time? And Oh, you'd you at least want to see a company like this keep up with population growth and GDP. So that's say three percent a year over the over a period of time. There'll be ups and downs in that. And then with automation and the invention of new financial products, and you could add a couple more percent to that. And then operating as you'd want them to be, you'd probably throw in a few IPOs each year. And so then you're getting up somewhere between six to eight percent of, of of revenue growth. And now that may not necessarily excite some of you listeners that are bloodthirsty growth investors, but 6 to 8% top-line growth from a company like the NZX at the current valuation would deliver you a very satisfactory return over time if they're able to maintain their profitability. And, you know, if, if they had grown 6 to 8%, 8% from 2013, the revenues would be $90 million an hour, and if they'd maintain that profitability, you know, you, you wouldn't be looking at a $1 share price, I'm pretty confident. And like I said, it'll deliver you a very satisfactory return over time. So like anything, you don't want growth for the sake of growth. Ideally, you'd love to see them grow and maintain their levels of profitability and not dilute shareholders by capital raise and share issuances along the way. But, you know, you could say that I want it all. Anyway, one of the things I'll talk to next week with Graham Law is what the company is doing to position itself for that sort of growth going forward. And this way... You know, especially by time if if we get an interview with Elevation Capital and maybe Brian Gaynor as well, this way it'll be something that you can judge accurately judge what the company is is doing and if it's to assess the growth potential and if you think that they're doing enough. Right. So how do I sum things up? All in all, I think the NZX as a company has good, if not great, fundamentals. The company has a history going back to eighteen sixty six, so it is truly a legacy company in New Zealand. Over a period of time like that, there is plenty of time for misdirection or, I guess, the the wrong sort of business practices to step in, especially when they're... I mean, it's not like a, a company like Pushpay, for example, that wasn't 
founded that long ago where they're essentially starting with a blank canvas. When you come into a company like NZX, you're never starting with a blank canvas. And I, I think this is especially so when there is little in the way of competition and threats to a business model. I think that over a period of time, some complacency set in amongst management. And I think the lack of IPOs over the last five years or so is a reflection of that. And I'll talk to Graham Law next week about infrastructure and ecosystem that needs to be in place for IPOs, and especially good IPOs to happen. Basically, you don't just pull an IPO out of the hat. What the NZX is doing now will dictate the IPO situation in five or ten years' time. So I think you have to like what they're doing now if you feel confident in buying the stock. So the complacency of management has led to a situation where investors in general feel frustrated at the stock exchange. And the criticism that gets levied at the exchange is at least partially justified or can and or at least it can be justified when viewing in, in the full context. And it is certainly disappointing for New Zealand investors to see Kiwi companies list directly overseas or delist from the NZX in the favour of other markets. And the situation has created a fertile environment for active invest, activist investors such as Elevation Capital to get involved and demand change. And, you know, like I said, a, a lot of their demands are, are, are perfectly reasonable. So the, the reason that the company has survived so long is because the fundamentals of the business are so strong. It, its monopolistic position has allowed the company to earn oversized profits and maintain its relevance. Such complacency in other industries would have likely been the, the death of a company. Um, I think it is also encouraging to see current management who, for the most part, have not been in the company for that long, step up to the plate and admit that things could improve. And it would be great to see if they could move things in the direction that we all want to see. So thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Keep an ear out next week for the second part of the series, which is my interview with Graham Law, the Chief Financial Officer at the NZX. As a reminder that nothing that I said today should be considered financial advice. It's all based off my own opinion. If you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give it a like by searching on Facebook. Make sure also to share with your friends. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Once again, my name's Jeremy Medlin, and this has been episode 38 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday, the 3rd of May, 2019. And we'll see you all again next week.